Welcome back. Hello, welcome back to Killer Babes Podcast with Katie. And Kirby. That's right. You heard it here first. This week, episode 63, is The Babysitter, My Summers with a Serial Killer. Mm-hmm. We might be entering winter, but we're going to take it back to summer for this podcast. I don't hate that. No, man. I want summer. It snowed yesterday for the first time this season. Mm-hmm. A couple flakes, but it, it did the trick. Yeah, it did the trick. I'm good. I'm ready for summer now. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> So we'll take everyone there mentally, mm-hmm. all of our fellow New Englanders. We'll have a little break this week, and yep. we'll take you to a nice, warm summer day on Cape Cod. Mm, I can feel the breeze already. This week, we bring you a recap of The Babysitter, My Summers with a Serial Killer by Liza Rodman and Jennifer Jordan. This story was recently featured in the New York Post, A&E Crime Blog, and Oxygen. This is a part one of part two episode sequel duo oh god (laughs) two-part episode yeah it's a two-part episode (laughs) part one will set the scene with tony costa and part two you will be able to hear an interview with the co-authors liza rodman and jennifer jordan their consultant reached out to us and sent us the book which i was pretty excited to read as one of our faux Mm, book club books if we ever did have a book club this would actually definitely be on the book club list i mean we read it so yes and definitely enjoyed it so Here's what they sent us. I'll just read the synopsis for you. And you can get the book uh, available at most book providers. And you can find it on their website, too. <laughs> anywhere. Anywhere you yeah. get books. We'll drop the link. Set in Provincetown, Massachusetts, late 1960s, The Babysitter is part memoir, part true crime investigation about Liza's childhood friendship with a very charismatic babysitter who she later discovered was a vicious serial killer. Growing up on Cape Cod in the 1960s, Liza Rodman was a lonely little girl During the summers, while her mother worked days in the local motel and danced most nights in the Providence Town bars, her babysitter, the kind, handsome handyman at the motel where her mother worked, took her and her sister on adventures in his truck. He bought them popsicles and ice cream, and together they visited his, quote, secret garden in the Truro Woods. To Liza, he was one of the few kind and understanding adults in her life. Everyone thought he was a great guy, but one thing she didn't know... Their babysitter was a serial killer who was later nicknamed the Cape Cod Vampire. The book is written from Liza's point of view, personal memories mixed with real facts from the case. Haunted by nightmares and horrified by what she had learned, Liza became somewhat obsessed with the case and in turn uncovered new information about the case with the help of co-writer slash friend Jennifer Jordan. So we'll jump a little bit into who Tony Costa was. Anton Charles Costa, also known as Tony, was born on August 2nd, 1944 in Cambridge, Mass. to Cecilia and Anton Fonseca Costa. Tony's father, Anton Sr., if you will, died when Tony was just eight months old. Anton Sr. drowned while trying to rescue a fellow seaman during World War II. He was never actually able to meet his son, Tony. While growing up, Tony had a great admiration for his war hero father. He always asked his mother to tell him stories about him. And then at seven years old, he told his mother that a man was coming into his room at night, and he said that the man looked like his father, who he had seen in photographs. Growing up, there were signs of sociopathy that began popping up with Tony. When he was a kid, Tony ordered a taxidermy kit. 
It was known amongst Tony's younger brother and his friends that Tony killed and disemboweled small animals. Later, neighbors would claim that a number of their small pets, cats in particular, went missing during that time. The summer before Tony turned 12, while he was in Provincetown, a local teenager lured him into his basement, tied him up, and raped him. Now, that's obviously not a sign of sociopathy in uh, Tony, but it's a traumatic event that his ex-wife would come to describe as, quote, one of the experiences that nestled in Tony's psyche, end quote. When he was 16, Tony met a girl named Donna, who was 14 years old. In November of 1961, Tony, aged 16, claimed Donna gave him a key to her house so he could come up to her room when her parents were asleep. He obliged, but as he stood over her bed, she screamed and he ran out. Three days later, Tony attempted to drag Donna down to his basement, slapping her when she screamed. Luckily, Donna was able to get away and she ran home. And then on August, uh, no, on January 4th, 1962, Costa, who was then 17 at the time, was convicted of burglary and assault and received a suspended one-year sentence plus three years probation. So there were signs of um, some troubles within Tony as he was growing up. But at the same time, by the early 1960s, Tony had grown into a handsome young man. And he met the cliche of being kind of a tall, dark, and handsome man. He was also known to be kind and polite, but with an air of coolness. He came off as a little reserved, maybe a little mysterious, and I think that kind of drew some people in. Instead of hanging with his classmates, he liked to hang out with the young teenagers who looked up to him. In the spring of 1962, right before Tony graduated from high school, he met 13-year-old Avis Lou Johnson. Right away, Avis was head over heels for Tony. They became an item soon after that. The pair wanted to get married quickly. However, because Avis was only 13 at the time, she needed her mother's approval to get married. But her mom refused. So they decided the best thing to do would be to get pregnant therefore forcing Avis's mother to approve of the marriage. It took six months for Avis to get pregnant, and then on April 20th, 1963, Tony married 14-year-old Avis. By the fall, they had their first son, Peter. But getting married and having a child so quickly got the best of the young couple, or so it seemed. Tony would get drunk and emotional, oftentimes just fleeing, leaving the family, leaving the apartment. When things got rough, he would go on, Nights long walks along the beach. Money was always tight, another reason for their many arguments. And on top of that, Tony's sexual desires became more dark and violent. Tony would give Avis chloral hydrate, a powerful sedative known commonly now as the date rape drug, until she was nearly comatose before having sex. Avis recalled asking Tony why it was that he only wanted to have sex with her when she was unconscious, quote, like she's dead. Tony and Avis would go on to have two more children. They incessantly argued, and there was always money problems as a young couple with three children. The two began using drugs to ease their stresses. But like their sex life, the drugs became more bizarre and produced more irresponsible behavior from Tony. The marriage was far from perfect. Avis had told a family doctor that Tony had hit her and their first child more than once. So to give you a little backstory history, Provincetown historically was a place where you could go and do your own thing. 
Pilgrims came from England to escape religious persecution, and then it became a fishing town. Quote, the great summer of 1916 brought artists who returned to America from Berlin, Paris, and London because of World War I. There were more relaxed attitudes towards sex in those cities, and P-Town kind of became a mecca for the free-spirited, artistic people who were very forgiving of many things. Provincetown became established later on as a gay village and an arts colony, which is, I think, what it's probably better known for now. Yeah, I think it, it still, yeah, has the same kind of pillars. I don't know what to call it, but... yeah. And then in the 1960s specifically, there were tie-dyed t-shirts, sit-ins, fear of large-scale drug use. So many people, young people in particular, experimented during this time with drugs to drive their parents crazy. It was something to do. They wanted to define themselves from their parents' generation through music, sex, and drug use. Hippies smoked marijuana, kids pushed heroin, and Timothy Leary, a Harvard professor, preached, tune in, turn on, drop out. He was a leading advocate for the use of LSD and other psychoactive drugs. So it wasn't uncommon for teens to just disappear without telling their parents. They'd pop up sooner or later after a trip. Yeah, this is not... Not a road trip. <laughs> this is not the time period that we're used to. No. No. Definitely not. I mean... Definitely not. In, in many, 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 many ways. But I think what it comes down to is like, hey, they didn't have cell phones. They weren't like texting their mom every day to like let them know where they were you know it's yeah something i don't i've never experienced so i don't fully understand but definitely lends its hand to why it's also the most or at least some of the most violent time periods in america 60s 70s mm -hmm. like you can't have that much violence and murder and abductions without yeah. having the kind of lack of technology that they did which i think is going to play a hand Lead in into this, this yeah. story yeah definitely there was a lot going on at this time it was a very up-and-coming period <laughs> sure tumultuous right? yeah, yeah i mean what the hell do you expect after a time period like the 50s like of course yeah. people are gonna want to rebel are you kidding me they want to do something i wish i was alive in like the 60s 70s i say that but I'm i'm quite happy where i am you know what you're right yeah that's yeah maybe that's a little I love the idea of spending a week or two in the 50s. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Yeah, no, I agree. <laughs> if that was a vacation. Yeah, you like you could go back in time back for in a time, week. That would be I cool. agree. I probably cool. wouldn't want to live there full time. It's probably a little ignorant. But I would be out. I'd be like, okay, get me back to 2021. Yeah, like I just want Netflix, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I agree. But yeah, it'd be, be cool. Costa's first two victims are believed to be Bonnie Williams and Diane Federoff. The two were hippie girls who Costa brought home in June 1966. He said he was going to take them to Pennsylvania and then to California, but later told police that he attempted, them to, attempted to take them to Hayward, but they never arrived. He returned home 10 days later without them, and they're believed to be his first victims. In August a year later, he shot a female acquaintance with an arrow and then later apologized for the incident, saying, whoops. Whoopsie do, my bad. Costa's marriage at this time already again was in shambles, and he went to California in January and stayed briefly at San Francisco's free-swinging Haight-Asbury district. Avis filed for divorce. Costa later found a girlfriend in a woman named Barbara Spaulding, who left her child and family and vanished when Costa went to Massachusetts. She is believed to be his third victim. 
Costa was pulled over by state police officer Tom Gunnery due to a bad muffler and for speeding on Route 6. He reportedly acted pretty suspicious, but Gunnery ultimately let him off with a warning. After learning of the disappearances, Gunnery later said he believed a victim may have been in Costa's trunk. The doctor who had been supplying Tony Costa with drugs stopped, and Tony robbed the doctor, took stolen drugs and various surgical tools, roughly about $5,000 worth of them, and buried them in the Truro Woods in Province Dump. A week later, Sydney Monzen, 18-year-old waitress, vanished from her house in Provincetown, and she was reported missing on June 14th. Costa was officially divorced in August, and he lived with his next lover, Susan Perry, for a week before she too vanished on September 10th, supposedly going to Mexico. That's what Costa said. He was arrested in mid-September for driving on a suspended license and again on the 25th for failing to support his wife and children. And he was held in custody until November 8th. After being released, Costa began spending time with Christine Gallant, and they used drugs together. She was later found drowned to death in her bathtub after what was believed to be barbiturate overdose on November 23rd. On January 24th, 1969, Patricia Walsh and Mary Ann Wysocki from Rhode Island vanished during a weekend getaway to Provincetown. Their parents told police that they were adamant that this was completely out of character for them because Walsh was a second grade teacher and Wysocki was finishing her education degree at Rhode Island College. And some witnesses even said they saw the girls with Tony Costa. Detective Bernie Flynn started the search at the boarding house where... Guess who also had a room at the same boarding house as the two girls? Tony Costa. Patricia Walsh and Mary Ann Wysocki's light blue Volkswagen was spotted in Truro Woods a few days later. On February 2nd, the same place where Tony stashed his drugs and grew marijuana, his secret garden. But then when they went back, the car was gone. It disappeared. So detectives went out to the woods again and looked for the missing car. And that's when they noticed a patch of dirt with fabric sticking out. They had found Susan Perry mutilated and hacked to pieces. Meanwhile, Tony had fled to Boston and then to Burlington, Vermont, in Walsh's Volkswagen and was arrested once the burial site was discovered to be his private marijuana and drug garden. He was found in possession of Walsh's car, which he claimed he bought from them before he went to Canada. There was a suspicious bill, and they also found the owner's manual with Costa's fingerprints on it. Costa gave numerous confessions while in police custody, many of which were found untrue via Costa's failing of several polygraph examinations. On March 5th, another search party found the dismembered remains of Patricia Walsh, Mary Ann Wysocki, and Sidney Monzen, who were all found buried in a mile and a half away from Susan Perry's burial ground. Tony Costa tried to implicate two of his friends for the murders, and he even made up alter egos. But Costa finally eventually confessed to Wysocki's murder on July 12th. Mrs. Costa, Tony's mother, Cecilia, remarried to Joseph Bonner- Bonaviri of Somerville, Mass., later divorcing and then had another son, Vincent. Mrs. Costa died on December 21st, 1969, of a cerebral hemorrhage. His trial began on May 6th through May 29th of 1970. In Barnstable County, the Commonwealth versus Anton Charles Costa took place from September 14th, 1971 through November 1st, 1971. His lawyers attempted to plead insanity, 
stating Costa was a heavy drug user, which may have hammered his irrational thinking, which is true. He, he was a heavy drug user. Quote, from the testimony of a number of witnesses, Costa from 1965 up to about the time of the homicides was a frequent user of such drugs as amphetamines, barbiturates, LSD, methadrine, hashish, solacin, nembutal, and marijuana. I've only heard of half of those. That's probably good. <laughs> I guess so. That he took the drugs orally and by injection, that Costa was drug dependent, and that he had been stoned and high on frequent occasions. There was medical testimony concerning the tendency of such drugs to adversely affect the mental capacity of the user, end quote. Four psychiatrists testified, and two said Costa was a borderline schizophrenic whose mental capacity was seriously diminished by the harmful drugs. The other two said Costa suffered from personality disorder. On the flip side, there was also circumstantial evidence that Costa was sane and, and capable of deliberate premeditation and that he killed the two girls, Patricia Walsh and Mary Wysocki, with deliberately premeditated malice aforethought. Costa also gave a rational, intelligent speech to the jury, which kind of worked against him because he gave such a good speech to the jury that it kind of proved he was sane, so no one kind of fell for the insanity act after then. So Costa was ultimately convicted of four murders and subsequently sentenced to life imprisonment. While incarcerated at Walpole Correctional Institution, Costa began to stock his cell with books on ritual magic and the occult, including a copy of Anton LaValle's Satanic Bible. He also wrote a novel titled Resurrection, which never received publicity, um, publication, which I believe he wanted it to. He sent it off to different people, but they were like, uh, no. Gonna need you to rework that. Gonna, gonna, yeah, it's a no for me, dog, you know? But in that self-novel titled Resurrection, he described how he and a man named Carl took Walsh and Wysocki out for drugs when Carl supposedly shot them both in the head. Costa allegedly killed Wysocki with a knife to end her misery. So he was like kind of the hero in that story. The two then buried the bodies. He also claimed Perry and Monson died of drug overdoses and that Carl dismembered their bodies without Costa's knowledge. But no, Carl was never found to have been connected to Costa and was presumably another false confession, just a way for Costa to avoid prosecuting himself fully. On May 12, 1974, Costa was found by correction officers dead in his cell at age 29. He was hanging by a leather belt from the bars of his cell. His death was viewed by some as a suicide, and others, like the authors of The Babysitter, which you'll hear in the interview, part two, believed he may have been murdered. Tony Costa is currently buried at an unmarked grave in Provincetown next to his mother. Tony Costa was known by the press and public as the Cape Cod Vampire and the Cape Cod Casanova. His case garnered international attention when District Attorney Edmund Dennis, Dennis? Dennis? Denise? <laughs> no. <laughs> oh. D-I-N-I-S released the details about the victim's conditions, saying bite marks were found on the victims and had their hearts removed, which was not true. Not at all. The hearts had not been removed, and he only had removed several organs, and that was from one victim. 
No cutting device was found and no evidence of cannibalism was found. Regardless, large media outlets swarmed P-Town. Provincetown Police Chief Beria said, quote, The press is bad, but the tourists are even worse. Mm. Which <laughs> is saying something in a vacation town. Yeah, that's true. Also, just putting it in there with the bite marks with if you watch American Horror Story. Did this come out from that? Was that inspired by this case? It is interesting because, I mean, I mean, that American Horror Story wasn't Pete John. Yeah. The, the latest one. Season, I don't know what season they're on now. Season whatever yeah. the hell. Yeah, I mean, it was in P-Town. And, and they was... had vampires in it. <sighs> Obviously, there's there's a, there was a lot more crazy aspects to the American Horror Story version. Yeah. But was it loosely based on this case? I mean, Vampire of P-Town. I think it may have. The, I mean, it's like, it's the headline of it anyway. It's not the actual story of Tony Costa, but right. the headline... So did technically like... Edmund come up with... American Horror Story? Is he getting credit? Does I don't anyone know. know? I don't know. I think we need to find that out. Some of Tony's victims were buried in pieces right there in his garden in the woods. The bodies showed signs that Costa engaged in necrophilia with them. During the trial, some analysts believed Costa was a cold-blooded psychopath, while another said that by raping and dismembering the corpses, he was, quote, acting out a horrific drama of incest and matricide due to his mother abandoning him by remarrying and having another son, end quote. Though Tony Costa's gruesome case made screaming headlines in 1969 and beyond, Liza never made the connection between her friendly babysitter and the infamous killer of numerous women, including four in Massachusetts, until decades later in 2005 when she began having nightmares about Tony. Although she didn't quite know it was Tony at first. And we'll hear more about this from her from her interview in part two. But in Liza's dreams, this man, this unfaced man, man with no face, I guess you could say, pushed her up against the wall on the long hallway and held a gun to her head. So eventually, Liza went to her mom one night and just kind of said, Hey, I'm having these dreams like about this guy. And she, she mentions it in the interview that at some point... In this dream, the man's face comes to life, and she's like, oh my god, that's Tony Costa. I haven't thought about him since I was a child. And she realized that all her nightmares she's been having is of Tony kind of harassing her in, in, in her dreams. So one night, she she's talking to her mom, and she brings it up, and she kind of says, hey, you know, I'm having these nightmares, and Tony's face is in them. Like, I remember he was my babysitter. Is there anything that happened? Like, I wonder why I'm having these dreams. And Liza kind of describes her time as kind of coming to a halt or at least slowing down as her mom just paused, took a long sip of her gin and just kind of said nonchalantly, yeah, well, I remember he turned out to be a serial killer. <laughs> it was like, okay. Liza Rodman said in an interview with New York Post, quote, I started researching him and going back through my own memories to see where my life and his life lined up. I just needed to know the whole story, end quote. Which I get. I feel like if I found out that my babysitter when I was a kid was a serial killer, I'd start to become kind of obsessed. I mean, we're, we already <laughs> researched true crime in our free time. Like, mm. what if something was related to me? I Yeah. I definitely would deep dive. Deep dive. I totally understand it. Would it would be all of season five. <laughs> we would make, yeah, we would make like a spinoff show yeah. on it somehow. Like, <laughs> yeah, I, I get that. 
today, babysitter serial killers are kind of a fascination in our society, too. The killer babysitter has its own niche in horror, probably because it combines two innocent groups, the babies and the sitters. The Babysitter novel series by R.L. Stein was quite popular in movies like When a Stranger Calls from 1979, or The Babysitter from 2017, or The Babysitter Killer Queen from 2020, all feature vulnerable kids who find themselves in unpredictable situations with so-called trusted adults. Luckily for Liza, she never encountered the killer side of her babysitter, but the unique point of the view makes The Babysitter, a true crime book unlike any other, and we guarantee you won't be able to put the book down. We both read the book. I mean, we're not just faking it for the sake of the interview. I mean, no, I love the They book. sent us a copy, yeah. full transparency, so we read it, um, and yeah, it was really good. I, I read it on my week vacation on the beach and yeah and i think it helps to yeah, the, the two-part author because one of them jennifer is an investigative true crime writer and it mm-hmm. makes the book so detailed this is just what we just gave you is like a watered down version of what you would get at the book the book is so in-depth it has so many details in it i definitely highly recommend you read it and it's really cool because then it like puts liza's perspective over it so yeah it's just like it's crazy we don't want to give too much away because we want you guys to actually read it but i um, haven't read a true crime book that was like this before no because and that's why i think it's it's unique you're like oh another true crime book like there's a million true crime podcasts whatever but it's unique in that it's half true crime but half like memoir. an actual yeah. story yeah a memoir but it reads as an actual just like it almost reads as a fictional it's a story yeah, yeah it's a very smooth read of like a girl growing up on the cape it's I think it's what pushes it over the edge of being creepy. Yeah. Because, great, another true crime book about a guy that kills them. Not to make light of the situation, but there's a million books, stories, shows, whatever. Sure. Of mm-hmm. g- serial killers. But you don't quite always get it side by side with, like, a young girl's perspective of this man who she trusted. And- right. Seemed like she loved and like she wanted to be with him all the time. So you don't always get that juxtaposition of like he's a terrible person, but also he's a great person. Like not great, but like he's a good babysitter, and like you don't get that side by side all the time. No, definitely not. So it makes it creepier for sure. In my eyes, I think so too. I think yeah, because you're like, how can these both exist? Like that's creepy, and it's also like, well. If that existed for Liza, can that did that exist for me? Like, who else would that have existed for? Like, mm-hmm. it's pretty creepy. Like, well, yeah, I mean, we've talked about it before with other cases where it's literally been the next door neighbor, or it's been someone's father, or it's been someone's daughter. And it, 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 we've heard from some of the family members from past cases, and I think we we kind of got a glimpse into that where there is a different side to someone. And this book really does a nice job of showing both sides mm-hmm. and not it's not biased to either or. Right. Which I, I, I think when we talk about with Liza and Jennifer, it's like you needed both of them to have both sides of that, which makes sense. Right. Because yeah, she mentioned that Liza's perspective was what she knew of Tony, which was only the good side. Jennifer only knew the bad side because she was doing all the research about <laughs> right. what happened. And she's yeah. like, oh, this guy is a piece of shit. So they they knew two different perspectives, and so they had to kind of come together to write it. It's yeah. cool. Definitely recommend the book. Definitely. Yeah. So whole side note there about the book, but to jump back in a little bit about Tony Costa, just to wrap it up. 
Costa was compared to Jack the Ripper by Kurt Vonnegut and his daughter Edith, who actually met Costa. Costa and Vonnegut maintained a correspondence with each other before his death. Kurt Vonnegut wrote a story about uh, Tony Chop Chop, is what it was called, for Life magazine in 1969. And in 1981, Leo Damore wrote In His Garden, The Anatomy of a Murder, in parentheses, The Cape Cod Murders. The novel is based on Tony Costa's case, and he managed to get a copy of a a semi-autobiographical novel written by Antone, a.k.a. Tony Costa. One chapter described two of the murders. Costa details a scene where, under the influence of LSD and booze, he was in Truro with two of the victims and a friend, Carl, which we now think isn't just an alter ego of Costa. Here's a brief section from Costa. So this is a snippet from The Apocalypse by... Antone, a.k.a. Tony Costa. It was only a matter of minutes before we arrived at the dirt road which would lead us to the cache. Cache. I directed Pat to turn off the paved surface and follow the wagon-rutted road. When we were about half a mile down the road, I heard someone say, quote, Oh, look, there's an old cemetery way out here in the middle of the forest. End quote. Yeah, I said, in the middle of nowhere. That's exactly how I felt at that moment nowhere. For the past few minutes, I had been silently meditating, looking inward. I felt depressed and forsaken. Although I was in the company of much-loved friends, there seemed to be something lacking. The friend I truly desired was no longer mine. I saw her no longer. I opened the car door and ambled over to the nearest tree. With LSD and the combination of other drugs in me, the tree became a huge spectral silhouette. The trunk bore the image of a gigantic wrist protruding from the ground. The top of the tree, completely uh, divested of foliage, appeared to be the hand and fingers of a colossal and fearful gruesome skeleton. I felt as though it were trying to grasp me in its cold, death-like grips as I trod the unearthly cemetery. So the chapter goes on to describe how all four of them did acid, and then Carl became enraged and killed the girls. Carl. Carl and Tony ended up burying the bodies, and Tony covers his senselessly murdered friends with leaves before he and Carl go. So to be transparent, Carl is an alter ego ego that Tony made up to hide the fact that he did it himself. We don't quote his book for any other reason than just to show that the drugs probably had some kind of an influence on him. I mean, he was seeing trees as knuckles coming out of the ground. Obviously, we're not saying that that's an excuse. So, in in our interview with um, Liza and Jennifer, we talk about this a little bit, but um, you know, they kind of think that at some point Tony was so far gone with all these drugs and just his mental state as well that he actually believes that his alter ego Carl was actually there. Like he believes there was four people there. He believes Carl killed them. Um, I mean, who know? Who knows? We we don't know what the hell was going on in his head then or or at any point. But um, I mean, he might have been so far gone mentally and with the drugs and everything that he actually believes that there was yeah another guy named Carl. We don't we don't know, but that's how he writes it. That's how he tells it. The book in his garden is considered a collectible and sells for a hundred to eight hundred dollars on Amazon. So good luck trying to get it. Yeah, good that's luck. Insane. 
If you're interested, Born to Kill did an episode on Tony Costa in 2014. So we also read online that um, Team Downey, which is the company run by Robert Downey Jr. and his wife, Susan Downey, we read that they acquired the series rights to Helltown, a forthcoming novel by Marshfield resident Casey Sherman. And that novel is uh, set to be published later this year, and it tells the story of Kurt Vonnegut and then another legendary American author, Norman Mailer, and their shared interest with the P-Town killer, Tony Costa. Um, so look forward to that. But also, in bigger news, we learned in part two, you'll hear more about this when it comes out next week, but Jennifer did confirm that they are signed for some kind of um, film deal. Mm-hmm. Whether that's a movie or a show, we have yet to find out, but we'll Or we'll maybe be... we do know, but it's in part two, so you're going to have to listen Ooh, to part two. Ooh, teaser. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Love that. You'll no, I'm actually really out. excited. I definitely dig the New England rise for some reason. I <laughs> do feel it has been pretty prominent lately over the past, like, three years when we've started Ooh, What this. a coinky dink. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're still waiting for a cup. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But definitely really cool. <laughs> Very cool to see New England- because we're from there. Yeah, and I just, I, I like when we get to know people personally and then somehow yeah, we that find out really that cool. they're making some kind of uh, media. I mean, I think this is going to be a great, a great story for film. Whether it is a movie or a limited series, um, I mean, I think it's going to translate really well to film. Definitely. So I'm, I'm excited for that. Everybody look forward to it, but check out the book first because it'll give you, I, I mean, I always like to read the book before I watch the movie. I always do. Always. It gives you a much bigger or like better understanding before you dive in. Yes, definitely. Because they there's some things you just can't add to film, whether it's Yeah. Well, regardless, you just can't add all of those little details. Yeah, all the little thoughts like running through Liza's mm-hmm. head or I guess. And emotions too. It's really yeah. hard to sometimes convey emotion or what yeah. someone might have been thinking through a screen. Well, mm-hmm. you'll need a really good actor or actress, but that's true. Still, books are better. In my humble opinion. Agreed, but you know, that's why <laughs> we don't always have the time of day, you know. He's like, oh, that is a good point, yeah. That's but, a good point, you know, it's a quick read and it is, it really does keep you on your toes, it keeps you turning the page for sure. I'm not a huge reader, but I read it in a week, which is saying a lot for me, actually. It is that that's a great accomplishment. It's actually, I'm very, like, very happy. I, yeah. So definitely go check out the book, but also mm-hmm. stay tuned for part two of our interview for next week. Yeah, you'll get a much more in depth understanding of Liza and her life and her whole story and how this book kind of came about and how she worked with Jennifer Mm -hmm. to write it. Right. And we'll put all the links down below in our social media. So if you're looking to find her website or if you're looking to find out where you can purchase the book, we will put it on all of our pages. So that being said, you should go follow us on Instagram at Killer Babes Podcast. And Mm. you should go follow us on Twitter at Killer Babes Pod. And you should follow us on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And if you have any inquiries, comments, questions, concerns, whatever, you should email us at killerbabespodcast at gmail.com. Yeah. And, um, yeah, we always post pictures on our Instagram. So um, go follow us on that to see some picture side-by-sides with the story. And like we said, stay tuned next week for an exclusive interview with Liza Rodman and Jennifer Jordan. Stay tuned. See you guys next week. Bye. Bye.